Turn again to John chapter 11. We resume our study of the gospel of John. John chapter 11. This morning we'll look at the first 16 verses of this chapter. Probably take us two or three weeks to get through it. Or four or five. Don't know. You know, few things are as heart-wrenching as the human soul in time of despair crying, Why, Lord, why? But that agonizing experience is common to most of us sooner or later. Why, Lord? Why did you let this happen? What are you doing, Lord? Why? That anguish of the human spirit is what's going on in our text this morning. People saying, why, Lord? Why? As we examine it, I trust that the Lord will help us as we see his response to that cry, that he'll help us to respond to our own times of anguish when we cry the same thing. Let me read the text, verse 16, verses. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha, this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was, two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short time ago, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So, when he, and so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. <clears throat> These verses divide uh, pretty naturally into two sections. The first six verses uh, talk about Jesus' response to Mary and Martha, sending word that Lazarus is sick. And then uh, verses 7 to 16 is uh, the account of Jesus dealing with his disciples as he talks about the possibility of going back there, and they uh, don't want to do that. Now these two groups, the sisters, Mary and Martha, and the twelve, the disciples, have very different ideas concerning what Jesus should do. They have completely different agendas which are contradictory. They're pulling in different directions. But as Jesus wisely, gently deals with them, we can see in the way he deals with each, with each of them some principles that apply to us because we face the same kinds of situations they face. We need to hear the same kind of exhortations that they needed to hear and that come out of this passage. So I think there are two exhortations here when we kind of boil it down as best I've been able to. Two exhortations which come to us. The first is this. Rest in Jesus 
love. Here's a call to rest in Jesus' love. A couple of weeks ago we talked about prayer. Why pray? We raised the question. Kind of went different places throughout the Bible talking about prayer. I hope that you found some reasons to pray. But it's one thing to talk about it, and it's quite another to have a real-life example. I think that's what we have here. We have a wonderful, real-life example of prayer from Mary and Martha. Look at the petition that they sent to the Lord in verse 3. So the sister said to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Oh, here's no demand. Here's um, no grocery list for God. Here's no advice to the Lord as to how he ought to do his business. Nope. Here's only the simple statement that Lazarus, your dear friend, Jesus, the one you love, is sick. In other words, they rest in Jesus' love. Now, it should be obvious, but note that this does tell us that those whom Jesus loves do get sick. All kinds of people running around acting as if maybe that's not true. We're quick to question the love of Christ the first time some pain comes into our life, but the Bible never indicates that being a Christian will somehow remove us from the pain of living and dying in this fallen world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, The love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from, from consumption or rheumatism or asthma. Those whom Jesus loves get sick. But note that the basis of their prayer is nonetheless Jesus' love. That's the sure foundation. That's the proper basis of their appeal. Oh, imagine if it had been the other way. Imagine if Mary and Martha had said, Lord, we love you so much. Lord, remember when you were in our home, you remember that great meal that we gave you, Lord. You remember that bed? We gave you the best bed in the house, Lord. You remember, Lord, how much we love you? Now it's payback time, Lord. Lazarus is sick. <laughs> and we're calling in our favors. Has kind of an ugly sound to it, doesn't it? Not only that, but it undermines our praying. How do I know that I loved him enough? How do I know that the meal was good enough? Maybe he didn't like that meal. How, how, how do I know when I've done enough that I could appeal and say, Lord, I've loved you enough now. You, you ought to do this for me. No. You see, the basis of our prayer is that he loved us. So we rest in his love. That's what they did. Great example of this. Great example of prayer. Resting in the love of Christ. But as we continue in our text, we find out that it's not quite as simple as it looks at first. For Mary and Martha, with absolute confidence in the Lord's love for them and for their brother, sends word to inform Jesus. Just I don't have to tell him what to do. Just inform him. He knows what to do. 
that Lazarus is sick and what happens? Well, in verses 4 to 6, we read that Jesus says, well, it's not going to end in death. He doesn't do a thing. He just stays there doing whatever he's doing. Why didn't Jesus say, come on, guys, we've got to go. My dear friend Lazarus is sick. He doesn't. Why doesn't he just speak a word and heal at a distance? He did that for the centurion's son, this is not some Roman soldier. This is his dear, beloved friend. No, and instead he just says, well, it won't end in death, and he stays put. Well, what Mary and Martha thought. I've been studying this the other day, and I went into town to get the mail, and I walked in the bookstore for something, and I'm looking around in the bookstore, and the lady comes in, and says to Ken Stapp, says, do you have that book called God Isn't in a Hurry? I thought about what I'd been studying. I said, I think Mary Martha maybe wrote that book, God Isn't in a Hurry. <laughs> I don't know anything about the book. The, the title just struck me because this is where I was. But, but folks, Mary and Martha are not the first ones to feel the agony of this, of God's delay. Lord, where are you? <laughs> did, did, did you get the message, Lord? This is the anguish cry that we find so often in the Psalms. I was, I was looking at this psalm that I'm going to read here. I was looking at a Michael Card album because I know he sings this psalm. And uh, he points out in there that though we think of the psalms as great songs of praise, there really are probably more psalms that are complaints against God than just praise of the Lord. Psalm 13 is one of those. It goes like this, How long, O Lord! Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I'm going to sleep in death. That's what Mary and Martha were feeling. See, what do we do with God's delays when they don't make sense? What hope is there when God seems to have forgotten? When it seems like we prayed and it didn't get through? How long, O oh Lord, how long? Then what do we do? We are to rest in the love of Jesus. That's what. That's what David learned way back then when he wrote Psalm 13. He starts out that when he gets to the last verse, he says, But I trust in your unfailing love. How long, Lord? I don't know where you are, Lord. Are you going to let me die here, Lord? But I trust in your unfailing love. But folks, the situation got even worse. What do you do when you've done everything right? When you have prayed fervently? When you have prayed correctly? Humbly? You've based your prayer on the love of God, not on some merit of your own. You have waited patiently for the Lord. You have trusted Him. And He doesn't help. And death arrives first. Before He gets around to help. What do you do then? Well, our text addresses that, I think. 
verse 5 and 6, where he talks about Jesus' response to their petition. You see in the beginning of verse 6 the word yet. That's a, I don't know, it's an unfortunate translation. The word is clearly therefore. Here's how it reads. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was. Two more days. Uh, maybe you can understand why the translators didn't translate that way. That sounds really confusing, doesn't it? What does that mean? It means that Jesus intentionally, on purpose, did not go. Why? Because he loved them so much. Now they're over there saying, if you loved us, Lord, you'd heal Lazarus. You see, they had a purpose in mind, but God had a different purpose in mind. And his purpose was so great and so magnificent that he would not sacrifice his perfect purpose even for their very urgent purpose that Lazarus be healed. You see, Jesus was about to reveal God's glory in his Son in a way that dwarfed their wildest imagination. Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. As God said through Isaiah, your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. It was Jesus' love that caused him to delay his coming until it was too late. He did it that they might see his glory. He did it that they might see the resurrection of the dead and might believe and might have eternal life. And that great truth, that great purpose of God was so important and it was such an act of his love that their immediate purpose, that Lazarus be healed, was dwarfed, was eclipsed by it all. Dr. James Boyce challenges us with these words. He says the point is that even though we cannot see how the situation will end or why it has come upon us, we can know that it flows from Christ's love and is controlled by it. Christ's delays are the delays of love, he says. Learn to interpret circumstances by the love of Christ, not to interpret Christ's love by the circumstances. In other words, no matter what, when you do not understand, when it seems to the contrary, rest in Jesus' love. I don't know what you face this morning, but it's not more severe than death. So I call you to cast your care upon the Lord and rest in the love of Jesus. Now you may object, well, it's easy to say that in regard to Lazarus because we know how the story came out. I mean, Jesus raised him from the dead. Of course it's easy to say that now. Won't we be, we be raised too? Is Jesus not the resurrection and the life for us as well as Lazarus? Do we have less hope than Mary and Martha had? 
We who know that Jesus not only raised Lazarus from the dead, but he himself was raised from the dead after defeating sin and Satan and hell for us, and now guarantees that we will rise, do we have less hope than they? Is he not the resurrection and the life for us? Is he not the promise and guarantee of our resurrection? Of course he is. So we can rest in his love no matter what. Now, how far are we going to push this? Well, you know the story of Horatio Spafford. I've told it to you before, but it's always interesting to hear it again. Prominent Christian lawyer in Chicago, 1873, put his wife and his four kids on a boat headed for France where he would join them in a few weeks. On November 21st, out in the middle of the Atlantic, the ship collided with another ship. As it sank in just a few minutes, the three oldest girls were swept overboard and lost at sea. The mom clung to the baby, but could only hold on for so long. The baby was torn from her arms by another big wave coming over. And for ten days, after hearing of the ship going down, he waited and he paced and he prayed. Lord, help. What's going on, Lord? Watch over my family, save my family. Until he finally heard it, got to received a telephone, I mean a telegram from his wife when she finally reached Europe. Two words, saved, alone. Four daughters, lost. You can imagine he had some agonizing time with the Lord. Why, Lord, why? Why? Lord, you didn't come in time. Why? This is irreversible, Lord. Why? But after agonizing through the night, he told his friend, Major Whittle, I'm glad to be able to trust my Lord when it costs something. A little bit later, as he sailed to join his wife and passed somewhere near the place where his daughters were lost at sea, he wrote that hymn that we love to sing that is a testimony of his faith when he says, When peace like a river attends my soul, and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well with my soul. Though Satan himself should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. Now there is a man who rests in Christ's love. Do you know that love of Jesus? Do you have that kind of hope? You see, when things look that grim, when your dearly loved children or brother or husband or wife dies and you prayed and you cried to God and he did nothing, it seems. What can possibly hold you together? What is big enough? Only that Jesus loves me so much that he died on the cross to pay for my sin. 
He rose from the dead to guarantee that I will rise, and he will not abandon me now. It is well with my soul. Here I stand. I rest myself in his love. I don't understand it, but I'm secure. That's the first lesson to be learned. There's another one that's learned, I think, from Jesus' interaction with his disciples. And that's this, this exhortation. Follow Jesus, then, to the cross. Follow Jesus to the cross. You ever been in one of those situations where you have friends that want you to do something and this friend wants you to do this? But if you do, you know you're going to disappoint this friend, but... If you do what this friend says, this one's going to feel betrayed. Here you are in this tug of war. You've been in those. Jesus is in that kind of situation. You know, he's a man like us. He feels those tensions. Mary and Martha would love for Jesus to come back to Bethany. It's at least implied in their statement that Lazarus is sick. The twelve have no interest at all in returning to that dangerous place. I think what we have here are lessons in passive faith and active faith. Jesus expects Mary and Martha to rest in him in the face of death. That's what I would call passive faith. There's nothing I can do. I'm helpless. how, How shall I respond? I will rest in the Lord. I'm passive. I have no choice. I but I will rest in the Lord. I will trust him. But Jesus now asked the twelve to go with him back into that danger zone. Now that takes active faith. That means moving forward, expending effort, intentionally moving into a dangerous situation only because God wants you to and you trust him to take care of you in the middle of it. Now passive faith is hard. We feel helpless. Our back's against the wall. We know that there's nothing we can do. And and what are we going to do when nothing seems happening and we feel so totally helpless that we're going to be overwhelmed? It's hard to say, Lord, I rest in you. I trust you. I wait upon the Lord. But I would suggest that active faith is even harder because you have more choices. You can go or you can say, I'm not going. You can advance or you can run. You can believe and obey or you can say, I'm not so sure I buy that and I'm not going to do it. Jesus is calling these disciples to an active faith to intentionally follow him to the cross. The situation is almost humorous when we read this dialogue here. Jesus says, let's go to Bethany. Now, if you don't know your geography very well, Bethany is only about two miles from Jerusalem. Very close. You can see Bethany uh, from Jerusalem, except it's just over the hill. I mean, it's close enough to see. Jesus says, let's go to Bethany or Judea. And the disciples say, Jesus, uh, you've got to be kidding. We, we barely got out of there alive, Jesus. Jesus, it was just a few days ago. Don't you remember this? You, you remember the guys, Jesus, with the rocks in their hands? No way. We're not going. And Jesus says, well, our friend Lazarus is asleep, and I've got to wake him up. And the disciples somewhat condescendingly, I suspect, say, look, Jesus, if he's sleeping, that's a good sign. It's going to be okay. And Jesus 
not as stupid as they think, says, uh, Lazarus is dead, guys. And the truth is, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake. Now let's go. The disciples didn't want to go. They resist again and again. Why? Same reason you would have resisted. They don't want to die. We have a natural aversion to dying. You may have noticed that. Dying actually holds us captive. Our whole life. Well, they have seen what happens in Jerusalem. They know what's going on over in that area. They saw the hostility growing. They saw the plots forming they saw the mobs developing. They saw the rocks being picked up. They knew exactly what was going to happen if they went back there. Jesus is going to get himself killed. And we might get it too. I mean, would you go back in that situation? Fear of dying sometimes paralyzes us. But Jesus doesn't seem be deterred at all by the fear of dying. In verse 4, he's confident that Lazarus' death is not, this is not going to end the death. Verse 6, he's not in any panic. He purposefully does what he's doing, stays where he is. Verse 7 and 8, the threat of stoning, well, it doesn't seem to bother him. Uh, verse 14, he's rather matter-of-fact about Lazarus' death. Even then, it's as if nothing really went, went wrong. In verse 15, he seems almost excited about the way things have turned out and anxious to get back in the thick of it. Jesus is not afraid of dying. And he's asking them to follow him right into the jaws of death, unafraid. Now, on what basis does Jesus ask him to do that? Well, I think that the, I think the answer is tied up in this difficult picture in verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. In those days, they didn't have watches that they wore around, and such, such uh, precision timepieces. They basically divided the day into 12 chunks. Six of them as the sun comes up, and six of them as the sun goes down. And the size of those chunks changes a little bit with the season, but basically they're 12 hours in a day. You do your work in the daytime. You don't have a lot of lights at night. You can't work at night. You don't travel at night. So as so long as you've got daylight, you're safe. You do your work. When the daylight's over, you're done. It's that simple. Jesus said when you're working in the day, you're in good shape. Try to go places, do things, stumble around in the dark, and then you're going to have trouble. Now, then he applies this to himself. I think what he's saying is, the daylight's not up. I'm still walking in the light. We may be late in, the, in my day. We may be getting on to the later hours. But my time has not yet come. He said that many times in John. And as long as I'm walking according to the Father's schedule, it's all right. And... As Leon Morris points out, it's all right for them. The disciples need not to fear to go with him because he cannot die before the appointed time. And there's still some time left. He's walking in the light. And they need to walk in his light. Jesus understands that he's going to the cross. He's said that many, many times. But he's not going to the cross as a victim. 
He's not a helpless victim of circumstances. He is proceeding on schedule according to the Father's plan, according to the light of the Father's will, and he calls his disciples to come and walk with him, purposefully determined to walk straight toward the cross. Follow me to the cross, he says. Well, how did things turn out? Well, they went back there. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and it was a glorious time, but for the Jew Jews who were hostile to Jesus, it was the breaking point. Jesus was getting way too popular. They saw this as a great threat, this wonderful miracle that he did, and it ended up being the thing that really precipitated the end. And in a few weeks, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus knew this was headed, where this was headed, but that's the reason he came. Not to see how much wealth he could amass, not to see what kind of luxury he could live in, not to discover new forms of comfort and entertainment and pleasure, but give his life. That's why he came. And that's why he's called us to come follow him to the cross. To count ourselves as dead to this world, to not seek to see how many people we can get serving us, but to give our lives away to serve others. To not see how much we can indulge our flesh, but to die to our self-indulgent desire. To give ourselves away in a way that his work may prosper, not our kingdom. In a word, to take up the cross and follow him. Now Thomas didn't understand everything, and we can say, well, he was awfully pessimistic. But this he understood, and this he was committed to. Look at the last verse here, verse 16. Then Thomas called Didymus, that means twin. He was somebody's twin, or he looked like a twin. We don't know how he got that nickname. Then Thomas said to the rest of the, of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. You say, boy, he was pessimistic. No, I think we should say he was committed. He didn't know all about the resurrection like we know. He only knew what he had seen. He only knew the hostility. He only realized that Jesus is heading toward disaster, and he had to make an active faith, a choice of active faith. Will I walk with him into the jaws of death, or will I turn and run away? And he says, I will follow him, even to the cross. Let's go and die with him. And they did. For not only did Jesus go to the cross, but every one of those guys died for their faith, except John, who ended up being exiled. What courage. Thomas chooses to face death rather than turn away from Jesus. Would you? Today, all, the, all around the world, people are having to make that kind of a choice. We forget that sometimes. We talked about it a little bit last Sunday night about the terrible things happening in Sudan to Christians. I read this week that 30,000 Christian children have now been taken as slaves. A million 
Christians have been killed in Sudan. I read about China this week. A nationwide arrest warrant has now been put out for 3,000 evangelical pastors in China, aided by some high-tech satellite communications gear that they bought from the United States. The national police are tracking down Christian pastors who have illegal house churches. In the month of April, in Shanghai alone, they destroyed 300 house churches, closed them down. May 26, in Henan province, a 36-year-old woman whose name I can't pronounce was dragged from her home by the police and beaten to death. Her crime, she's a member of a house church, an illegal Christian. People having to choose, will I go to the cross to follow Christ or will I turn and run? But despite all the persecutions, the church in China continues to grow. According to World Magazine that I received this week, the September 21st edition, I, I, I quote, one house church leader from Shanghai personally attended a mass baptism in central China last August where 1,100 new converts were baptized. In a context where that could get you beaten to death, People choosing to take up the cross and follow Christ. Jesus is still calling disciples, just like he called the twelve, just like he called Thomas, to follow him to the cross. Now, we don't face that. We live in a lot of comfort here. We meet freely, openly. We put a sign in the front, and nobody hassles us about it. But in a much more subtle way, in a, in a much closer-to-home way, that call of Jesus to take up the cross and follow him is still pressing upon us. For you see, we live in the midst of a culture that is consumed with self-indulgence and greed. So what does it mean to take up the cross in this culture and follow Christ? It means to turn our backs on self-indulgence and greed and become slaves of Christ, servants for his sake. To die every day to what I want to do in order to do what he tells me to do. It means that in the land of opportunity where we have great opportunity to pursue wealth and success and happiness and fun and recreation, that we say, I'll let it go. I'll let the wealth go. I'll let the success go. I'll let all the recreational things go. I will let the fun go. It doesn't matter. I die to those things because I will follow Christ. And there's not time to do all of that and follow Christ too. I have to make choices. I die to what I would want to do in order to live to what he calls me to do. That is the nature of Christian disciples. It is following Jesus to the cross. Whether it means dying inside every day and watching ourselves get older without having accomplished the things that other people think are success because we have been faithful to Jesus. Or whether it means facing dying the moment we confess Christ. It's just what situation we find ourselves in. The cost is the same. Jesus calls us to follow him to the cross.
Thomas understood that. And with active faith, he said, I'm ready to go. And he did. Were you? We begin asking the question, why, Lord, why? And we end with Jesus saying, you trust me and don't be afraid. That's what Jesus expected of Mary and Martha. Rest in my love. Don't be afraid. Even when death overtakes you, even when it doesn't work out like you thought, even when I don't respond like you thought, you rest in my love. And that's what he said to the twelve. That's what he asked of them. You follow me to the cross. Don't be afraid. I am the resurrection and the life. Follow me. I'd like to close with a hymn, but I'd like to tell you about it before we sing it. It was written by a man named George Matheson in 1882. He was engaged to be married as a young man, but just before the wedding he found out that he was about to turn, about to go blind. His eyesight was failing, and they told him he was going to be completely blind before long. He was deeply in love, engaged to be married, and his young bride-to-be could not take that news. And she abandoned him just prior to their wedding. Which left a wound in his soul that took him years to deal with, for he never married. And he went on to seminary and he pastored a church in Edinburgh. But the wound in his soul still had to be dealt with. And he wrote a hymn that most everybody thinks came out of that experience. And this hymn, which he wrote in a matter of minutes, he says, was the fruit of his suffering. I think as we listen to the hymn, and it's familiar to all of us, if you listen to the hymn, I think we hear the same themes that we hear this morning. Rest in my love. Follow me to the cross. That's what he wrote about in his suffering, in his situation, in his day. Dying to self to follow Christ. It goes like this. O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. In the last verse, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in the dust life's glory, dead. From the ground, there blossoms red life, which shall endless be. I die that I might live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's how we do that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take your word. Lord, as we see your disciples here, Mary and Martha and the Twelve, having to learn what it is to trust you in such stark terms, such totally helpless terms, or in such actively scary terms. Lord, take those truths and apply them to us, for we find ourselves in the same situation, having to say, how will we respond? when all goes wrong 
and you seem far away? Or how will we respond when the cost seems too high to follow you? God, give us grace to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.